With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 373. It's titled... Are stable coins safe? Should you own them? Last month, the U.S. Federal Reserve released a research paper on the possibility of the central bank issuing its own digital currency. The paper defined a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, as a digital liability of the Federal Reserve, a digital IOU. The paper dollar is also a liability of the Federal Reserve. It's an IOU. It doesn't pay interest. It doesn't ever mature. But if you look at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, on the right side, under liabilities, are dollar bills. On the left side, under assets, are treasury bonds, mostly, and a very small amount of gold or gold certificates. The dollar used to be a stablecoin in that it was backed by assets with the idea that it would hold its value. That's different than stablecoins today. A true stablecoin is collateralized and backed by assets, but can be exchanged for a dollar or some other currency at par, at its set stable price, typically one dollar. But a dollar is always worth a dollar because that's what it is. Paper currency is public money. It's issued by an independent government agency. An independent government agency is part of the U.S. executive branch. But day-to-day actions are not controlled by the president of the United States. He can't just fire the head of independent agencies. Other examples of independent government agencies are the U.S. Post Office, the Social Security Administration, or NASA. In today's modern economy, most money is digital, but it is not public money. It's not issued by the government. The most common form of digital money is checking and savings accounts at a bank or credit union. When you go to the bank, you deposit cash, public money, and then the bank gives you a receipt and reflect it on the account records. If you go online, you'll see the deposit. But that deposit represents an IOU from the bank. It's a liability of the bank. They owe you money. We don't think of bank deposits as private money because we're confident the money is safe because of government deposit insurance. In the U.S., the FDIC, which is also an independent government agency, oversees deposit insurance and individuals are protected up to $250,000 per account. Now, prior to deposit insurance, there were periodic bank runs depositors worried that their money wasn't going to be able to be redeemed if they wanted it, that the bank was failing, that the bank had too many loan defaults. Between 1929 and 1933, during the era of the Great Depression or the start of it, depositors suffered $1.3 billion in losses from bank failures. There were many, many bank 
failures, and bank runs, even leading up to that. That's why the U.S. government established in 1934 the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to protect depositors from bank failures. The initial insured deposit amount was $2,500, later increased to $5,000 in June 1934. Now it's up to $250,000. This bank private digital money can be spent via debit cards, online transfers, or writing a check. That's just the main type of private digital money. Another type of private digital money are money market mutual funds. They're also a stablecoin in that these funds accept deposits from individuals and invest the money in high-quality, ultra-short-term debt issued by governments and corporations. The average maturity of the debt is less than 60 days, so the value doesn't fluctuate. They peg the price of a retail money market mutual fund at a dollar per share, and they seek to keep it at that. It is digital money backed by collateral, ultra-short-term government and corporate debt. This private money, money market mutual funds, are also subject to runs. We saw it in 2008 and 2020. The Federal Reserve had to step in to backstop money market mutual funds. It did so directly in 2008 by saying that it would guarantee the price of a share of retail money market mutual funds at a dollar, that they wouldn't be allowed to break the buck, which means that the net asset value per share, what each share is worth, would never be marked less than a dollar, that depositors could redeem their stake in that money market mutual fund, their private money, the IOU that they had, they could exchange it and get bank money or even cash in return. The Federal Reserve had to take additional action in 2020 to backstop money market mutual funds. And we discussed how money market mutual funds are subject to runs and the additional regulations that were put in place to protect depositors. We discussed that in great detail in episode 333 of the podcast. Deposits in money market mutual funds are money. They offer checks. You can get checks for your money market mutual fund. Now, depositors don't do that as much as they used to, but when I first invested in money market mutual funds back in the late 80s, I had a checkbook and I could write checks against it. Money market mutual funds and bank and credit union deposits are a huge part of what is known as the money supply, the other being currency itself. So year-end 2021, there was $2.1 trillion of currency outstanding, so public money. There was an additional $18.5 trillion of private money in the form of bank and credit union deposits. And then there was $1 trillion in retail money market mutual funds. Combined, they are private money, and they have a unique requirement that Gary Gordon and Jeffrey Zhang point out as they're accepted with no questions asked. And that's the goal of private money, that we accept that a bank deposit, a dollar is worth a dollar, even though it's private money, and that it will hold its value and that if requested, these demand deposits, if we demand a dollar in cash, we'll get it from our checking account. Digital stable coins are a new kind of private money that have come about in really the last five years. 
Currently, there are over 70 outstanding digital stablecoins. Total value, $170 billion. About 20% of the total amount in money market mutual funds. The largest is Tether. It goes by USDT. And the second largest is USDC. Tether has $78 billion outstanding and USDC has $49 billion. These are known as true stablecoins. They're non-interest bearing. They're designed to have a stable value to a reference currency, a dollar, and they're backed by collateral. There is a reserve. What makes these stablecoins different is they run on the public blockchain. Many of them run on Ethereum. So they're smart contracts. And as a result, the way that you buy these stablecoins is you go to a broker like Coinbase and buy the stablecoin. But the transaction is verified on the blockchain, this digital ledger, as opposed to when you invest in a money market mutual fund or through your bank, they have an electronic ledger also, but it's just their own ledger. Whereas these stable coins are on a public ledger as opposed to the private ledger of a bank or money market mutual fund sponsor. But in many ways, a coin like Tether is similar to a money market mutual fund. It's private, it's not insured, and it's backed by collateral. Tether, on a quarterly basis, releases reserve reports that show how many digital tokens are outstanding, and the collateral backing it. The most recent one, as of September 30th, showed that it was backed by, there was a total then, of $69 billion outstanding, and it was backed by commercial paper, so short-term debt issued by corporations, bank certificates of deposit, was backed by cash at banks. It also was backed by money market mutual funds. It had investments there, as well as treasury bills. Tether is a stablecoin backed by collateral or debt. What's different with Tether is it doesn't have any regulatory requirement as to when it should disclose its reserves. Now, a number of states have cracked down on Tether and said you need to disclose it. But there's no regulation as to what it can use as collateral. For example, Tether has almost $4 billion in corporate bond funds and precious metals. A money market account wouldn't have that, be too volatile, but Tether does. There's no rules. So those are true stable coins backed by collateral that run on the blockchain, but that collateral is held off the blockchain. It's offline. So there needs to be some interaction between offline and the online blockchain. That's different for another type of stablecoin, algorithmic stablecoins. There is no off-chain collateral for these coins. The entire process runs on the blockchain. We discussed one of those algorithmic stablecoins in episode 339 of the podcast when we looked at DAI and the MakerDAO. This is really a second-generation stablecoin because there is still collateral, but it's on-chain collateral. DAI is backed by debt and by Ether, and it's over-collateralized in that there's way more Ether backing the DAI because Ether is so volatile. The third generation of stablecoin is what I find most interesting. One that I own or participate in is Terra 
USD. Its ticker is UST. I don't own the stablecoin, but I own the DAO that governs it, Luna. And another one is Beanstalk. Now, Beanstalk, I find incredibly fascinating because their website's so cool looking. And they use a lot of farming metaphors and describing how their algorithmic stablecoin works. The, the coin itself is called a bean. These algorithmic stablecoins work because there are participants, individual actors that are incentivized to maintain the peg of the stablecoin to the dollar or whatever the reference currency is. There's an entire ecosystem built on it with a number of different parts. At its core, there needs to be a desire by arbitragers, market participants that have a financial incentive to make sure that the peg holds. It doesn't always work. There's a stable coin, an algorithmic stable coin that came out in 2020 called Empty Set Dollars that was set up algorithmic, but there was a run. And there weren't enough participants to hold the peg. And there, was a, there just wasn't the ecosystem there. And the stablecoin crashed. It's worth about a penny and a half today. Dr. Ryan Clements, writing for the Wake Forest Law Review, said, Algorithmic stablecoins are an unregulated, uncollateralized digital asset that operates in a perpetually vulnerable state. And that if the demand to participate in the ecosystem falls below a threshold level, the entire system will fail. These algorithmic stablecoin sponsors then, often they're set up by a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization that we talked about DAOs late last year in our Web3 episode. They want broad participation in the ecosystem because then there's trust, there's a network effect, and there's enough participants to maintain the stability of the stablecoin. That's how the dollar ecosystem works. There's a network effect. There's a desire to use it. But if that desire wanes, then any currency can fall in value relative to other currencies and relative to real assets. The same can occur for stablecoin. If there's doubt, a lack of trust, a lack of trust in the collateral or not enough participants, then the stablecoin can lose its peg. And you can see that. You can look at historical graphs of stablecoins and see times when they've fallen below a dollar for the stablecoin. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. 
That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The overriding question then is why? Why is there a demand for stablecoin? The foremost demand and the initial interest was it provided a way for holders of cryptocurrency, traders that are holding and maybe trading in Bitcoin or some other volatile cryptocurrency to move that exposure over to a stablecoin that will hold its value. Perhaps they lock in some profits, but they want stability on the blockchain as opposed to holding some very volatile cryptocurrency. Stablecoins are the core of decentralized finance or DeFi. Stablecoins are important for the entire DeFi boom, the lending and borrowing of cryptocurrency. These stablecoins are often used as collateral for additional speculation and loans. Stablecoins are some of the most highly traded assets in the cryptocurrency sphere. As investors, speculators move in and out of cryptocurrency, they borrow to invest in other cryptocurrencies. But stablecoins are our core to that because you need an asset that holds its value. Now, there are other reasons that individuals hold stablecoins. They might do so to protect their assets from a declining fiat currency. Last month, we did an episode of Money for the Rest of Us Plus on Brazil and whether investing in Brazil was a good opportunity or not. One of the things that we saw is that the Brazil real the fiat currency in Brazil had lost 70% of its value relative to the U.S. dollar since 2011. If you believe your currency is losing value relative to the dollar, holding some stable coin can provide some protection. Another reason to own stable coin is because it can be much cheaper to send money overseas in cross-border transactions, remittances. A government report by a working group set up by the president with contributions from the Office of Comptroller, the FDIC, pointed out, and this report was released last November, I'll link to it in the show notes, in the second quarter of 2021, the average cost of sending a remittance from the United States to other countries was 5.4% of the value of the amount sent. That's incredibly expensive. And stable coins provide a way to participate there to send money without such high fees. What then are the risks of stable coins? Well, foremost, it is private money. It's not public money like currency. It's private money. 
A true stablecoin is the safest because it is backed by collateral, but it depends on how often that collateral is disclosed and what's actually in the collateral because there is no regulations as to what stablecoins have to hold as collateral or even disclose it. It's in their interest to disclose and to keep it safe to keep that peg, but it isn't required. And there's always the risk that there could be a run and that could actually, if they, for example, Tether, there was a big scare. Holders of Tether wanted to exchange it for cash, for dollars. That would force Tether to start liquidating collateral and potentially could push down the price of that collateral. That's why there were concerns regarding runs on money market mutual funds. The money market mutual funds had to start selling all this commercial paper and short-term debt, and it was pushing down the price of that debt, making it difficult for money market mutual funds to keep their price at a dollar per share. And that's when the Federal Reserve stepped in. We'll more than likely see additional regulation for stablecoins, disclosures, collateral requirements. But right now, there isn't. Another risk is they could be replaced by central bank digital currencies. How are they different? A CBDC issued by the Federal Reserve, it would be public money accessed digitally. There wouldn't be the risk of default that you see with private money or runs because it's issued by the currency issuer. The dollar is a Federal Reserve note. It's backed by the Federal Reserve. It can't be redeemed for anything, but that's where the biggest trust is because the central bank can create money at will to meet those obligations. A true stablecoin can if its collateral falls in value because it is truly needs to be backed. So a risk to stablecoins are central bank digital currencies. Stablecoins is private money. And as a result of the lack of insurance and the demand to use it, we as holders can earn very attractive interest rates for depositing stablecoin in an account like BlockFi that is paying over 8% interest on stablecoin. But BlockFi is a private corporation that doesn't disclose their financials. We don't know what they're doing with the money. They say they're lending it out. But if they experience a lot of defaults on their loans, then that stablecoin that we have on deposit could be at risk, which is why they have to pay 8%. We don't know how they're, if they're commingling that stablecoin, some of these BlockFi-like accounts. Is the collateral all mixed together? How is it kept separate from other corporate assets? Central banks see stablecoins as a risk and cryptocurrency in general to their ability to maintain economic stability within a country and to maintain control of their currency. And that's why you're seeing central banks explore and in some cases issue their own digital currency. China, for example, the People's Bank of China has been experimenting and has a digital currency. They see threats from other retail payment options that most Chinese use, Alipay, WeChat Pay. And so the PBOC wants Chinese citizens to use its own digital currency. It hasn't required it yet. And that's one of the risks with central bank digital currencies. What if the government says you have to use it and you give up anonymity to use it? What if the Chinese government requires businesses that trade with Chinese companies to settle in the Chinese digital currency? 
We don't know, but there are geopolitical risks also to these central bank digital currencies. As I went through researching this episode, what you find is much of what is occurring in the crypto space is already being done in traditional finance. And it always raises the question, is this really needed? Is it better? And we don't know yet. It continues to evolve. But I read a a fascinating editorial by two economics professors in the Wall Street Journal, Steve Hank and Matt, Matt Sekirk. And they had two overriding points. One is there have been some proposals that would allow crypto exchanges, something like Coinbase, to have access to FDIC insurance to cover their stablecoin balances so there wouldn't be runs. They said that would effectively monetize cryptocurrency. It would turn cryptocurrency into money because, yes, it would be private money. But if you had FDIC insurance on your BlockFi account, one, I don't think interest rates would still be 8% on those deposits. But these authors says monetizing crypto would be tantamount to legalizing counterfeit currency. I don't think it's that extreme, but it would also, in order to do that, there would be way, way more regulation. Their other concern was with bank lending and traditional finance, much of it is going to loans to improve the productive capacity of a nation to be able to produce more, produce it more efficiently. That's sort of one of the points of finance. And in some regards, crypto just seems like this casino of speculation, everybody participating, hoping a particular crypto coin or token will go up in value. It's evolving and will continue to evolve. But right now, you can't go out and take out a crypto loan that I'm aware of and and would go invested in a business, for example, or a piece of equipment to produce widgets more effectively. Why would you? You could just do that in some other currency, a fiat currency that your sales are in. But we're still in the early days, so we'll see if additional use cases come about. In the meantime, the developments are fascinating. I'm particularly intrigued with algorithmic cryptocurrencies and whether they'll get enough of a network effect so that they can maintain that stability. On the other hand, I'm sort of like, well, if I had a choice... I would prefer something that was backed by real assets. My foremost preference would be a a central bank digital currency issued by the Federal Reserve that I could have an account at the Federal Reserve. That probably won't happen because then the central bank would be competing with commercial banks. But even if commercial banks were involved, to be able to access a central bank digital currency and that could be used on the blockchain in other areas, then that and seems like that would reduce the use for other stable coins. We'll see how it evolves. We'll see how the regulation evolves. We'll continue to monitor it. But for now, are stable coins safe? Sort of. True stable coins are generally safer if we're measuring by volatility than crypto tokens. Algorithmic stable coins are less safe because if there aren't enough people participating, they could crash. The safest are obviously central bank digital currencies. I own some stable coin because 8% interest, that's attractive. But I keep my allocation as a small percentage of my net worth because of the risk of runs. And these stable coins are not protected. The central bank will not come in and rescue stable coins if there's a run. 
That, then, is episode 373. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly, the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You'll also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>